This week on the show, we cover tales on the M1 GPU, getting the Home Assistant running in the previously 31 jail, an interview, as short as it may be, nevertheless interesting, with AWK creator Dr. Brian Kernigan next week, or next week, next steps towards immutable Unix's technical history is mostly old now, and more this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 485, FreeBSD Home Assistant, recorded on the last day of November, which is the 30th of 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find and hopefully use the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you would like to support this show in one way or the other with a little donation, then check out our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash bsdnow. And thanks in advance if you do so. You don't have to, but, well, you can decide. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Hello, welcome. We are soon approaching a very special episode. We'll have to figure out what we do for that one. But this one is not that one. And we'll be jumping right into the headlines. This is about... Oh, no, wait, wait. You, you, know, it's, you know it's St. Andrew's Day today. I mean, I know it's St. Andrew's Day, the patron saint of Scotland, hence our flag. Oh, is it? I'm trying to flick through a book of uh, Burns poetry, but I'm not going to freestyle a Burns poem. <laughs> not oh, yet. May contain next year. pieces of poetry. That could be a thing. <laughs> okay. Um, first up in the headlines, we have Tales of the M1 GPU. And this is by Asahi Lina. Um, and they write, hello, everyone. Asahi Lina here, or me. Uh, Mark Han asked me to write an article about the M1 GPU, so here we are. It's been a long road over the last few months, and there's a lot to cover, so I hope you enjoy it. Start with what a GPU is. You probably know what a GPU is, but do you know how they work under the hood? Let's take a look. Almost all modern GPUs have the same main components, a bunch of shader cores which process triangles, vertex data, and pixels, fragment data, by running user-defined programs. There are different custom instruction sets for every GPU, rasterization units, texture samplers, render output units, and other bits which work together with the shaders to turn the triangles from the app into pixels on the screen. Exactly how this happens varies from GPU to GPU. A command processor that takes drawing commands from the app and sets up the shader course to process them. This includes data like what list of triangles to draw, what global attributes to use, what textures will be used, what shader programs to use, and where the final image in memory goes. It then sends this data over to the shader cores and other units to program the GPU to actually do the rendering. A memory management unit, or MMU, which is in charge of limiting access to memory areas belonging to a specific app using the GPU, so different apps can't crash or interfere with each other. In order to handle these moving parts in a reasonably safe way, modern GPU drivers split are split into two parts, a user space and a kernel space driver. The user space part is in charge of compiling shader programs and translating API calls like OpenGL or Vulkan into specific command lists that the command processor will use to render the scene. Meanwhile, the, the kernel part is in charge of managing the MMU and handling memory allocation deallocation from different apps, as well as deciding how and when to send their commands to the command processor. All modern, all, all modern GPU drivers work this way on all major OSs. 
between the user space driver and the kernel driver, there's some kind of custom API that is customized for each GPU family. These APIs are usually different for every driver. In Linux, we call them the UAPI, but every OS has something similar. This UAPI allows the user space part to ask the kernel to allocate, deallocate memory and submit command lists to the GPU. That means in order to make the M1 GPU work with Asahi Linux, we need two bits, a kernel driver and a user space driver. Alyssa joins the project all the way back in 2021, uh, which is last year, <laughs> all the way back in 2021 when Asahi Linux started. Alyssa Rosenzag joined the project to start working on reverse engineering the M1 GPU together with Doug Old Johnson, who focused on documenting the GPU shader architecture. She, re she reverse engineered all the user space bits, including the shaders and all the command list structures needed to get up rendering. That's a ton of work. But less than a month, she was able to get drawing her first triangle, which is amazing. If you haven't checked out her series on dissecting the M1 GPU, you should visit our, her website and take a look. How can she work on the user space driver without a kernel driver to go with it? Easy. She did it on macOS. Alyssa reverse engineered the macOS GPU driver UAPI enough to allocate memory and submit her own commands to the GPU. And this way, she could work on the user space part without having to worry about the kernel bit. That's super cool. She started writing an M1 GPU OpenGL driver for Mesa, the Linux user space graphics stack. And just a few months later, she was already passing at 75% of the OpenGL ES2 conformance tests, all on macOS. Earlier this year, her work was so far ahead that she was running games on a fully open source Mesa OpenGL stack running on top of Apple's kernel driver on macOS. There was still no Linux kernel driver, time to help out with that part. I decided to start trying to figure out how to write an M1 GPU driver. Scott Mansell had already done a bit of the rec reconnaissance work on that front when I got started, but it was already clear that this was no ordinary GPU. Over the first couple of months, I worked on writing and improving a M1 N1 hypervisor tracer for the GPU. And what I found out was very, very unusual in the GPU world. Normally the GPU is responsible for details such as scheduling and prioritizing work on the GPU and preempting jobs when they take too long to run to allow apps to use the GPU fairly. Sometimes the driver takes care of power management. Sometimes this is done by dedicated firmware. Sometimes there was other firmware taking care of some of the details of command processing, but it's mostly invisible to the kernel driver. In the end, especially for simpler mobile style GPUs like ARM Mali, the actual hardware interface for getting the GPU to render something is pretty simple. There's the MMU, which works like a standard CPU, MMU or IO MMU, and then the command processor usually takes pointers to user space, command buffers directly in some kind of registers or ring buffer. The kernel driver doesn't really need to do much other than manage memory and schedule work on the GPU. And the Linux DRM, Direct Rending Manager subsystem, already provides a ton of helpers to make writing drivers easy. There are some tricky bits like preemption, but those are not critical to get the GPU working in a brand new driver. The M1 is different. Just like other parts of the M1 chip, the GPU has a coprocessor called an ASC that runs Apple firmware and manages the GPU. This coprocessor is a full ARM64 CPU running an Apple proprietary real-time OS called RTKit, and it is in charge of everything. It handles power management, command scheduling and preemption, fault recovery, and even performance counter statistics and things like temperature measurements. In fact, the macOS kernel driver doesn't communicate with the GPU hardware at all. All communication with the GPU happens via firmware, using data structures and shared memory to tell what to do. And there are a lot of those structures. 
such as initialization data, submission pipes, device control messages, event messages, statistics, firmware logs, and tracing, command queues, buffer information, statistics, and page list structures, context structures, vertex rendering structures, fragment rendering commands. It gets even more complicated than that. The vertex and rendering commands are actually very complicated structures with many nested structures within, and then each command actually takes a pointer to a microsequence of smaller commands that are interpreted by the GPU, like a custom virtual CPU. Normally those commands set up a rendering past, wait for it to complete and clean up, but it also supports things like timestamping commands and even loops in arithmetic. It's crazy. And all these structures need to be filled in with intimate details about what is going to be rendered, like pointers to the depth and stencil buffers, the frame buffer size, another MSAA multi-sampled anti-aliasing um, is configured, pointers to specific helper shader programs and more. In fact, the GPU's firmware has a strange relationship with the GPU MMU. And if you wanna know more from this article, you should look it up in our show notes and read it because I'm about a third of the way through. Um, it's very in depth and it covers a lot about how this started. Um, how they implemented a driver in Python and then how they started working on the driver in Rust. And it's a great read and it's really good to have in-depth engineering tales on cutting edge hardware like this. Oh yes. Plus a lot of female power in there. So here we go. I, I see it the next generation of uh, system developers uh, coming or starting here right off because I think they can do a lot more than uh, this already quite sophisticated work, but I think once they get started, they are unstoppable. Okay, uh, next up is a uh, article or tutorial how-to from Dan Langell about getting Home Assistant running in a FreeBSD 13.1 jail. So I was uh, stumbling over this on a tweet he sent, and I was like, hey, what's Home Assistant? Never heard about it. You know how far I live behind the moon. And so I looked into this, and I was like, hey, cool. So... That way I found uh, that we should cover this on the show. So this is uh, from August, but still relevant and useful. So Dan writes, Home Assistant is not friendly for plain installs. It seems designed for containers or running everything out of pip install. That in itself is a disturbing trend I've seen on several projects. What, you're not running a git clone image? Um, I've seen reports of people running containers, etc. However, I want to run this on FreeBSD. Rightly, you should. I don't want to muck about with installing containers, etc. If containers are the only way for a project to run, you're doing it wrong. There we go. That should be a t-shirt. Um, I tried recently and eventually succeeded after several failures. Open source should not be this difficult. Another t-shirt, I would say. <laughs> the devs seem unaware of the problems. A previous attempt in June involved an Ansible playbook. After terrible install this past Tuesday night, I'm going to amend that playbook. So he has a little bit of an overview. Uh, what this post uh, entails and how many uh, hours of work went into that probably. So it's good you get that the final piece is here and only the uh, things that are working are displayed and not the um, or shown and not the ones uh, that didn't lead to anything. So that's quite nice. Thank you, Dan, for the work here. I suspect the packages hosts which uh, the devs use come with SQL Lite already installed. That's why it fails without first installing. That might also be why the first guide I used installed real manually. Ah, okay. Yeah, he has a couple of links here. So Rust is a known dependency, he notes. The second, this is why I manually install Pillow. There's a separate blog post. Um, uh, or no, it's a uh, GitHub gist. Uh, he installed Wheel because I saw lots of using legacy setup pi install for XQL Alchemy. Since package Wheel is not installed, installing Wheel as a package did not silence this message. And there's some others he lists, but... 
um, in the end, it boils down to package install Rust Pi 39 Pillow and Pi 39 SQL Lite. Then you can get into the user creation, a separate one, as you should on a Unix system for a separate service, give a separate user. And he created a Home Assistant user using PW, and he shows what uh, command switches are needed for that. Um, the installation directory is created, and of course, given to that uh, recently created Home Assistant user. And then the remaining is done as the Home Assistant user in that uh, environment. So first you create this virtual environment using SU, you change to Home Assistant, and then you create a Python virtual environment. He shows how to do that, so you can basically follow along on his blog, then you activate that virtual environment, and then you install some dependencies that are necessary to get this running. And his recent uh, mention on Twitter, that's why I uh, mentioned this here, uh, also had his running on a beehive, so you can also you know compartmentalize this way. And then he talks about some other dependencies and things that uh, are needed to get it running. And last but not least, gets him to the uh, website where you can start the uh, Home Assistant configuration, like name and username and password, and then you continue on with your Home Assistant tool. Very nice, and I hope that we will see more of this. And I think it's a nice tool for like a Raspberry Pi uh, 3 or 4, or some other embedded device to just sit in the uh, in your home or in the office to do some helpful work for you. I, I, at the bottom, he's got what's next. I want to get TLS up and running, and I'll do that as a new post. Getting Home Assistant up and running is complex enough. No, uh, yeah. Also required an <laughs> rc.dscript. Yeah, but maybe <laughs> I don't, we'll I don't get think something. Dan likes this. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully Dan is persistent in this regard. If he likes something, uh, then he will try his best. Okay, we have news and we'd like to make it round. And first up in the news roundup this week is a brief interview with the OCK creator, Dr. Brian Kerninging. Uh, and this is by um, Hassam on pldb.com. And it's in a weird two column format, which actually was quite nice. But if this was more than like 300 words, it wouldn't be very good. And uh, this, uh, this was published on the 15th of November. Uh, Dr. Brian Kerningging is a Canadian computer scientist who contributed to the development of Unix at Bell Labs. Along with Dennis Ritchie, he co-authored a fundamental book on C, the C programming language. He has been training the next generation of programmers at Princeton University since 2000 and has been monumental in his contribution to computer science at large. He wrote the first documented Hello World program. And to that we say, hello, Brian, Hassam. Are there any novel ideas from Awk that have yet to be adopted by others? The main idea in Awk was associative arrays. They were newish at the time but which now show up in most languages either as library functions or directly in the language. Associative arrays are very a very powerful construct and can be used to simulate lots of other data structures. I guess the pattern action paradigm was also not novel, but not like widely used at the time. It's an effective way to organize some kinds of computations. When you make a programming language, what references do you use? None? This was a long time ago, think the 1970s, and the language that I've been involved with have all been new and special purpose, so there wasn't much available prior art. Of course, one vital tool was Yak, which made it really easy to create and experiment with grammars and have them converted into highly efficient parsers. Lex did the same thing for the lexical level. 
replacing a lot of tedious code with a set of rules. Lex is certainly an example of a pattern action language. Arguably Yak is as well, so it's kind of a virtuous cycle. What would be your advice to young people today who want to get into the field of designing programming languages? Try designing and implementing small and special purpose languages. They are a lot of fun and often very useful. They're a great deal easier than trying to create a replacement for Rust or C++. Look for things that could be automated if you had the right kind of language to spell out the steps. Then create a simple compiler and runtime. John Bentley wrote a couple of relevant articles on this a long time ago that are still relevant. I added two relevant, so the first one was mine. Uh, yeah, there's a great uh, little micro interview. Um, I really like this format. Oh, yeah. I was so tempted to use uh, Brian Kernighan interview as the show title, but I resisted that <laughs> clickbaity title. So that would be amazing to to know and to have him on the show. I mean, we can just you can just email him. I mean, no people <laughs> right. that know him. It's It's not that hard. Right. What's the worst thing that could happen? He says no. And the best thing he says yes. But yeah, we'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, we have news from OpenBSD. And they talk about next steps towards MIM mutable uh, from Theodore Rutter himself. And it's from the unmute the mutable department on OpenBSD's Undeadly Org. Um, no, it's a separate journal. It's not directly from OpenBSD, uh, but, well, they cover OpenBSD. So they write, in a recent message to the tech mailing list, Theodor Rath uh, summarized the state of the new memory protections work. Thread also includes a follow-up from Otto Murbeek, Otto at, on consequences, consequence changes to the memory allocation mechanisms. So Theodor writes in his message, uh, I'm getting close to having the big final step of mutable in the tree. Here's a refresher on the, how it works, what's already done, and the next bit to land. Description. The mutable system call changes currently mapped pages in the region to be marked immutable, which means that protection or mapping may not be changed in the future. Mmap and protect and unmap to pages marked immutable will return with error uh -uh, eperm. Okay, that's the system call. In reality, almost no programs call it. Let me start by explaining a process's address space, starting with the simplest program and then heading into complicated cases. And that's quite a long posting there. Uh, we probably should give that uh, as a read to our users. Yep, and uh, there's a follow-up uh, from Otto, um, quoting a section about the static executables being completely mutable. Um, uh, this will change. I have code ready to change the init of the malloc data structure to that the one page will be modified to contain the right data, then make read-only and then made immutable. Okay, so these are, uh, as they have at the bottom here, so we have exciting times ahead in snapshots and looking forward to the next release. So definitely interesting, and I will look forward to a conference talk about this. Oh, I bet you'll get one. Okay, next up we have a blog post from Chris Siebenman, uh, most recently mentioned in the last episode of this podcast. Uh, and Chris writes, Unix technical history is mostly old now. Yesterday, I wrote about how the Unix swap configuration used to be simple and brute force, covering a number of cases from V7 Unix through Linux 0.92c. As I wrote that entry, it became increasingly striking to me that the most recent time I mentioned was 1992. This isn't something unique to swap handling or new in my entries about much of the technical origins and evolution of Unix. 
Instead, it's because a lot of Unix's technical history is now at least 30 years old. It's not quite the case that nothing has happened in Unix history since the early 90s. Very obviously, quite a lot of important social things have happened around Unix, such that by the end of the 90s, what Unix, Unix's people used had changed significantly. And then in the 2000s, the change became drastic. Less obviously, a bunch of internal kernel technology changed over time so that every so that today every remaining comment in Unix has good SMP and a far better place for performance. To some degree, technical evolution has also continued in file systems. The problem is that this evolution is not evenly distributed and with most advanced file systems, the least widely used. Unix has made valuable strides in commonly used file systems, but they aren't drastic ones, and the file system related features visible to people using Unix haven't really changed much since the 90s, especially in common use. There has been no large move to adopt ACLs or file attributes, for example, although file capabilities have snuck into common use on Linux systems. Some things that were known in the early 90s, but not very well adopted, have become pervasive, like having a slash proc or interacting with the kernel status information and tuning through a structured API instead of ad hoc reading, and sometimes writing kernel memory. However, these changes at least don't feel as big as pre previous evolutions. It's better that PS operates by reading slash proc. It's still PS. If you think I think if you took a Unix user directly from early 90s and dropped them into a 2022 Unix system via SSH, they wouldn't find much different that was they wouldn't find much that was majorly different in the experience. Admittedly, a system administrator would have a very different experience. Practices and tools have shifted drastically for the better. It's possible my perspective leaves me blinded to important things in Unix technical history evolution in the 2010s, 2000s, and 1990s. I'm, I I have a I have a oral retort here. Um, I plan, and with no expectation of there being any follow-through, at CCC camp next year to run a 1990s sysadmin job interview simulator where you come and debug our network in the 90s. Uh, will this happen? Probably not. I'd like it to happen, and it's far enough away that I can make promises about it, and, and I'll forget. But I think it'd be a great thing to do in a field, uh, and so I'm going to aim to do that at CCC camp next year, assuming it happens and assuming I can get tickets. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's really fascinating to me how different things are from the nineties, um, and, and the eighties and how similar things are. And so there's just a really weird balance here. Um, from 1993 to today, lots of things are actually quite different in really weird ways, just being on a system, um, definitely around system management and dealing with network interfaces. Things are very strange now, uh, strange in the past compared to now, our tools are much better. Uh, but yeah, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I have this in teaching. Like every year, students, I expose them to Unix. So some of them know it already, but some who are completely new. And the more history we have, the more difficult it is to explain, you know, why the things are as they are in the system, right? And because they have so much history now, you would have to take a whole lecture slot to explain this and <laughs> how on earth did we get like, here just take it for granted as it is you might not like it but it's been this way for a long time and it's and it was no need to change it so far um just take it for now and you'll see the power that lies in it but yeah it's my struggle each time a little bit interesting as well because i also have started at one point right and i also don't have the whole history behind me it's impossible. It's, you can't, yeah, you can't know everything. 
Uh, now we have a big block of updates from Michael W. Lucas, and he is busy in multiple areas. The first one about the Fediverse uh, servers plus Mac port ACL on FreeBSD. So that is from his blog, of course. And uh, yeah, let me read that one. So Fediverse servers plus port Mac port ACL on FreeBSD. One of my business mantras is control your platform. If you build your business around a site like Facebook, they can deprioritize you and disappear you. Uh, Twitter's implosion served as a fierce reminder of that, so I'm blogging more here. So yeah, uh, he recently uh, left Twitter altogether. Um, I would say in the, as, a, as a Tolkien uh, reference to, the, um, to Lord of the Rings, a great light has gone out. He's not completely gone, at least not from the internet, uh, but he moved over to the Fediverse over Mastodon and all. Um, but that's just an update here. So before Twitter's implosion, the Fediverse, Mastodon, PixelFed, and all the other activity pub-powered systems drove just as much traffic to my site as Twitter. Other social networking sites are negligible. If I want to follow my business mantra, I must run my own Fediverse server. I tested three options, Mastodon, Pleroma, and GoToSocial. Mastodon is huge, clunky, and handles like a tank made out of chicken wire, tar, and lobsters. <laughs> I spoke with a few Mastodon operators, and none of them recommended it. Okay, <laughs> that's, uh, well, okay, Pleroma, question mark. I followed the instructions. They didn't work. I went looking into support, but I discovered that Pleroma seems to be the server of choice for turfs, racists, and related jerks. The recommended servers for new users are all on my personal block list. I don't care to help those folks debug their instructions. Well, there's that. All right. Then go to social was a joy, except it's not only in development, it's in alpha. Hmm. They're very clear about this. The features that exist are beautifully done, but certain features I find critical are incomplete. So he has decided to wait to deploy a production Fediverse server until go to social enters beta at least. Okay. For incomplete software though, go to social is surprisingly complete. It has its own web server and lets encrypt implementation. If it can bind to port 80 and 443, if you don't need a web server or Acme agent. The catch is go to social, uh, the man page for that, runs as an unprivileged user, or the, not the man page itself, but the, the, the binary. Um, it can't bind to privileged ports. Okay. Enter Mac port ACL. In the BSD tradition, man page details everything you can do with this mandatory access control kernel module. Or in short, it lets you permit particular users or groups to bind to privileged network ports. Ah, I don't care for Mac port ACL in production as the rules are hard to read when you're debugging. If you want me to use an access control program, the output better be not harder to read than PFCTL-SR. But here's how you do it. So he describes that you just put this in bootloader.conf, Mac underscore port ACL underscore load equals yes. And now you can write port ACL rules. And he describes how those look like briefly as you know lucas is writing textbooks they are understandable and i'm a good uh person to uh, to tell you about this if i can understand everyone can understand it um and i need to fiddle with a sysctl uh, but that's also described and so now he asks would i use this in production if the software had a solid security track record and is designed to be directly exposed to the internet sure if you're running a web server, some program has to listen on port 80. Go to social is brand new though, and I'd like to see a bit of a track record before I completely trusted it. Fair point. When go to social enters beta next year and I deploy it for real, I'll put an nginx or HTTPD in front, or or yeah, so that you can filter 
uh, anything that's unneeded. Okay, are there other options other than Mastodon, Pleroma, and go to social? Sure, but I'm out of time and I really need to make some words this week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up in the Lucas block, we have 50 books, 30 years. What's next? I edited my SNMP MIB to include two new books, Prohibition Orcs and Frozen Talons, and realized that the first book in that table came out in 1992, 30 years ago. Plus, Frozen Talons is my 50th book. If you count things with my name on them, including anthologies and chapbooks, but not translations, it's number 96. Ooh, wow. No, wait, my list is missing one thing, 97. Quick, somebody send me a neurological personal assistant to crap, track all this. <laughs> 50 books in 30 years. Two thoughts. A more business-oriented author would have planned a 3050 marketing extravaganza with advertising defoliated into a swanky golf course and special cryptocurrency limited to a single coin for each book. The coin for Ed Mastery Manly Edition is measured in units of, um, well, uh, yeah, never mind. The thought makes me even more tired. Two, dang, I write slow. It's not quite as bad as that. Of course, let's look at the more books by this author page from Tarsnap Mastery in 2015. It, it sh it's less books. Excluding the coming out soon titles, that's 14 books. Many of them are heavily researched 500,000 word doorstops. I've written 36 books in the eight years of full-time writing since then, somewhat better. Numbers don't really mean much though. What does 36 books mean in the real world? Well, here's my catalog in April, 2015. It's a shelf. Uh, and I took the photo to make the shelf look full, but notice there's space hiding at the end. And in 2017, the shelf became full. Uh, which I thought was an achievement. Look, the books fill right to the, ed the shelf, left edge to edge. There's no way to snuff another book on there. Silly me, 2020. It's it's a hard choice. Upgrade the shelf or stop writing. So here it is today, an entire bookcase. We bought the book sh shelf in 1996 for gerbil cages. I'm afraid it's about to overflow. Fortunately, IKEA has these bookshelves again. Maybe I can get something fancy with glass doors. Of course, neither the number of books nor a total mass of books matter. The sales on books uh, of most of these books faded into the long tail years ago. Like words written per day, how many books I've written is irrelevant. The only books that matter are the ones I'm writing now. But also like how many words I've written today, the count of books I've written now is the only way to measure the ineffable and to set goals. So here are some goals that will help make me through my career. Next, I will break 100 things with my name in them. Anthology and chat books count for this. With February's Devotion and Corrosion Collection, run your own mail server later in the year and hopefully get Merge Murder and the Skybreach books before the end of the year, I should break this easy. With any look, there'll be new editions of the ZFS books near the end. Given my atrocious record keeping, perhaps I've crossed this already. Who knows? 100 books before 2033. Some doorstops, some 40,000 word novellas, a whole bunch in between. While I intend to keep writing until I'm dead, I know that I have no idea what my health will be like in however many decades I have left. With any luck, 2032, I'll shoot for 150 before 2043. What are all these books? Grab the latest SNMP agent as discussed in the Network Nomicom because some of you still treasure your minds. However, I'll leave a copy for your posterity. I don't think anyone of me has a complete set of originals except maybe EB over in Israel. If he doesn't have all 50, he's pretty dang close. Anyone who has all 97, I should seek professional help yeah. and a carpenter for the bookcase. <laughs> uh, you can get quite good um, modular, strong modular shelving from Ikea. Yeah, here we stuff. go. <laughs> so <laughs> definitely what kind of achievement is that, right? It's amazing. 
Yeah. And Someone to stop him. point number two, you're not riding too slow. You're just following the motto, slow and steady wins the race, right? Yeah, who would, if you wrote faster, who would ever manage to read all your books? Like... <laughs> right? You, you, people need to uh, have time to catch up reading all these tomes and good knowledge in there. We, yeah, should, so... we should have him on to celebrate something like his 107th oh, book. Oh, sure. Like some really weird number that some has no party. basis in maths. Because that would be fun. Oh, yeah. As always, he has been on the uh, times we interviewed him. Many times. It was a good episode. Oh, it could be a, the number of times he's been on the show should be a factor of the number we celebrate. You're here. I think he's been on five times, so it needs to be a multiple of six. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very well. He has plenty of stories probably about any of these books. That fills the whole evening. <laughs> okay. And uh, last in his uh, little update section here, mailing list freebies. That's for you readers probably interesting as well because it involves books so this goes uh i've tested everything and it all seems to work so i guess i can tell you now if you sign up for my fiction and or non-fiction mailing lists you will get free ebooks if you sign up for the non-fiction list you get a free copy of tarsnet mastery i'm sure that colin over at tarsnet will be less than thrilled that i'm giving away free documentation for his service but it's my book and he can suck it up uh, no, he replied on Twitter that he's perfectly fine. And uh, we're also supporting that since we are happy users from Tarsnap as well. So everyone should get their hands on that and use Tarsnap this way. And use it in every last detail because the book describes it. Okay, if you sign up for the fiction list, if you uh, are interested in that, you will receive not one, but two, uh, not two, but six free stories spread out over a month. Some are commercially available only as part of collections. Ooh. These are not newsletters. I only bother to send mail when I have a new reason for you to give me money, such as a new release, a Kickstarter, a bundle, or one of my very rare sales. Is this giveaway a transparent ploy to make you listen when I try to sell you other books? Yes. Yes, it is. I hope that the freebies will so enchant you that you must purchase everything I have ever written. Or that my generosity will so burden your conscience that the mere sight of my name will make you mash the buy button. Either works. <laughs> Excellent. So definitely sign up to get the latest news from Lucas. Okay. Then that is the conclusion of our first ever Michael W. Lucas section of the podcast. I don't, well, hopefully I don't not know if he's done it. I don't think he's ever had an entire section of his own. And now it's time for the Beastie Bits. And first up in the Beastie Bits, we have more hashtag freebsd power saving notes and this comes from ignoranthack.me you, you said it um it's been a while since i needed to be mobile with freebsd again i remembered that there are several out of the box tuning things that should go into rc.conf and a few modules you should load from mobile workstations uh, you need to turn on power d enable um, set the economy cx to lowest and the cpu frequency to low these will slow down your laptop when running on battery and should give you the juice needed to take notes and update your remote projects. I wouldn't recommend them for a machine you need to do build worlds upon. Um, ACPI video load in loader.conf. This one is a module that I forgot about for some time. If you load it, you'll get a couple of new tunables that can be used to turn down the backlight, which is useful even if all you do is not want to disturb, is disturb your better half when reading at night. Um, hw.acpi.video uh, you can throw these in sysctl.conf whenever you like 
um, see the ACPI video for more info. I, I don't know what they do. Um, ACPI conf-io um, i0 less, and it will tell you the battery, the, the ACPI reported battery life cycle, um, current capacity and usage while you're on battery. Um, and it should give you an idea if you've managed to save power or not. Uh, doing this gives um, um, ignorant hacked on me a solid four hours of note taking and walking around. Which is pretty cool. Oh yeah, useful when you're on your last uh, few percent. And the next thing I found is hacker stations. Uh, I think it's from either a newsletter that I uh, frequent or from Hacker News. Could be both. So Hacker Stations is a collection of workspace setups by tech professionals from all over the world. Whenever you're looking for inspiration for your own setup or a missing device chair or anything else, uh, or just want to see how others design their workspaces for focus and productivity, we've got it. And so you can, let's say, you click on one and you see a picture. And they also describe what kind of devices they use, what the chair is and where you can get it. And that's kind of cool if you see something interesting then, hey, you can dive down and find that item and maybe get it yourself, right? And you have like very different, you know, chairs, tables set up, standing desks, different keyboards, you know, headphones, all kinds of crazy things. Oh, these are really professional studio equipment here. Um, so yeah, check out that page. <laughs> Ours look bad in comparison. Um, Mine's just I'm... entirely made of wires. <laughs> No cable is uh, where it should be. But yeah, check out that thing. It's a nice way of looking at uh, other people's workspaces. Okay. Um, we're, we're, we're not a religious organization, but we have been made aware there is a cult of DD. Um, this come from, comes from Eklitzik. I don't know how it's meant to be said. Benedict, can you try? Eklitzke? Cool. If you don't know, I don't know. Um, they write, the cult of DD. You'll often see instructions for creating and using disk images on Unix systems that make use of DD. This is a strange program of obscure provenance that somehow still manages to survive in the 21st century. Actually, using DD is almost never necessary, and due to its highly non-standard syntax, it's usually just an easy way to mess things up. For instance, instructions like this will ask you to run commands like ddif equals image.iso, of equals slash dev slash sdb, vs equals 4m. Guess what? That's exactly equivalent to doing uh, cat the image onto the device. The weird bs equals 4m argument in dd isn't actually doing anything special. All it's doing is instructing dd command to use a four megabyte buffer while copying. Who cares? Why not just let the command figure out the right buffer size automatically? Another reason to prefer cat is that it let you actually string together commands via a normal shell pipeline. For instance, if you want progress, you can do cat pv and then write to sd-dev-sdbo. There's an obscure option to gnu db that to get to display a progress meter as well. But why bother memorizing that? If you learn the pv trick once, you can use it with any program. If you want to create a file of a certain size, you can do so using other standard programs like head, for instance. There are two ways to create a 100 megabyte file containing all zeros um, using TD and using head. Um, the head command is useful for lots of things, not just creating disk images. Therefore, it's a better investment for your time to learn head than it is to use DD. Why not use truncate? Um, in fact, you already know how to use it. I will confess there are some less interesting options that there are some interesting options that DD has, which aren't easily replicated with cat or head. For instance, you could use DD to convert between ASCII and 
EBDIC encodings. If you find yourself doing that a lot, I wouldn't blame you for rooting for DD. But otherwise, stick to more standard Unix tools. I, I don't know. I disagree. One of my friends has repeatedly DD'd his hard drive by accident, and I find it hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Every time he does it, it's it's lots of fun for me. Yeah. Uh, okay. Then there's RavenOS or Ravenos. Ravenous. It's uh, not Ravenos.org. It's Arix.org with uh, spelled like A I R Y X. And that there's a lot is, of Y's in these names. It's a, oh, it's a Y. Yeah, it certainly is. Yeah. Um. Uh. That's uh previously been called Arix OS. That's properly pronounced, uh, which is an open source operating system based on FreeBSD, CMU Mach, and Apple open source code that aims to be compatible with macOS applications and has no hardware restrictions. So we thought this would be interesting to the BSD crowd. That's why we cover it here. I think it's called Raven OS. <laughs> Raven, yeah, I think it's easier to pronounce like for uh, strangers like me who can't. Nevermore. <laughs> and it looks very macOS like, but not too close. And it uses, of course, uh, FreeBSD under the hood and some other um, eye candy. So if you're in the desktop space, definitely check this out. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups. And Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated in them so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts those with your local private key, which never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone would have been able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they cannot access it because it's still encrypted. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find some errors in the code. And with clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. And that's us. Um, closing this episode. Uh, hopefully you liked uh, our content this week and uh, follow us uh, in the future on the Twitches, on the Twitters, as long as that is still a thing. And uh, always there will be a new episode. Well, I say always, but it usually gives you a new episode every week in your podcatcher, whatever that might be, or on BSD Auto TV, our main website. And if you want to supply something as a uh, article, how-to, blog entry, whatever it is, send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Any last words from you? No, I, I got distracted by one of the articles linked by something I've read. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's also quite educational for us each time. Yeah, it's always fun. Okay, thank you. Till next week. Bye.